Welcome to With All Due Respect, presented by Eternity News. I'm Michael Jensen. And I'm Megan Powell-Dutois. Today we're talking about the wash-up from the election. So it's our post-election issue, partisan politics, a reflective Republican and division in Dairy Girls. I'm looking forward to talking about Dairy Girls. We've been trying to get it in forever. <laughs> oh, are you going to do Irish accents? I am. <laughs> For argument's sake, where we take a debate, cut out the party politics and try to talk it out. And our debate this time is, can we do politics without being partisan? Uh, And we're looking at this in the wake of, well, I guess the big storm that's happened since the election result that no one expected. Yes, I guess, uh, can we do politics without being partisan? Now, we're talking about the Christian community because there's a, a... big division in the Christian community if you follow social media. There are people who just cannot believe that Christians would vote the opposite way to them, who find it outrageous that Christians would vote X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think Christians, but also I think it's the the division amongst Christians has its own particular flavour, but it is certainly mirrored out there in the wider Australian community as well. And there's been something being discussed, I think, by the wider Australian community about how do we be a community um, when there is such a different ideas about what the future of our country should look like. Yeah, it's tribalised, mm. and I think we're seeing perhaps in smaller doses what we see in Britain and America, unfortunately. And uh, I think the, the one of the narratives, I don't know if you agree with it or not, Megan, is that the ALP played a, a, a more tribalised game than they realised and disenfranchised their sort of working-class more conservative, socially conservative base uh, didn't speak to them and so lost in Queensland, where they might have expected to to win, um, partly by then picking up gains in bizarrely wealthy inner, inner city, um, I was about to say parishes, uh, <laughs> seats where actually they... Parishes might be part of the story. <laughs> they <though>. didn't, well, <laughs> indeed, they didn't win this, those seats, but they made gains but that, that didn't translate into an actual an electoral Gosh, victory. I mean, I'm not an election pundit, but obviously something happened. This is in, your chance. <laughs> something happened in Queensland there, um, and perhaps they underestimated what they needed to do to make that up elsewhere. I mean, I think it was really, really complicated. Um, but part of it, I think, in, in terms of how it affected the community, sorry, I'm moving past being an election pundit because I don't want to reveal my ignorance, uh, but is that it was so not what we expected. So I think what you got afterwards was people's real emotion, um, emotional responses sort of unvarnished, undisguised. So we had some Twitter explosions, uh, including from Jane Carrow, who was at a wedding and sort of said, uh, you know, you know, fingers up to all you backwards farts or something. Yeah. It was quite abusive. <laughs> I, I didn't uh, even see what she wrote because I, I don't hang out on Twitter much. Then she, took, to she took it down, but then of course it had already been uh, copied and she then wrote a sort of uh, apologetic piece. A mea culpa. Yes, which was interesting because it was her, her gut reaction was sort of uh, really quite condescending to the electorate, which has just expressed its opinion. And that was, the, that was the tone of criticism of her. But then it was the shock and surprise that Australia didn't do what seemed to be obvious and knock out the coalition government and turn to the the. But interestingly, when she wrote her reply, she did call for greater civility. And it wasn't just Jane Caro uh, calling for that. That's been a general 
call that you've seen. As people have kind of, I think we've been a bit shocked by the way that we all spoke about the election afterwards. As in, as in calls for greater civility, shocked or um, shocked by the the kind of the the outrage that came, the anger that was expressed, or both directions. I think both the um, the jubilation on one side and the outrage on the other side, and and realise that um, what do we have in common with each other? That was huge, and and therefore, how do we deal with a community in which? some of the things we hold most dear, other people seem to have a completely opposite opinion about. I think, though, um, it's, it, it's more tribal and emotional than we, than we, than we think. And mm. so people, people don't like to feel that the people carrying an issue are really not, not them or not representing them or not like them. So I, I, it, it often the symptom is an issue. So some, for some people, climate change was the single big issue. Uh, for a lot of people, it's not that issue. Um, but if you think climate change is the big issue, you actually have the job of con- – you have to convince people. You have to work with people rather than say they're idiots. So – because they're not going to vote for you if you say they're in. They're well, that, I mean, that's the thing idiot. with democracy, isn't it? That it's a whole lot of people in the middle. <laughs> Who aren't terribly decided uh, or passionate or so on that we've got to bring with us. There, there is that necessity to think how the other person thinks. But it did make me think about how the church works. Yes. So I actually did get told off for being too nice. Um, <laughs> they don't know you. <laughs> uh, well, my public persona being being too nice to people who had voted differently from myself. My vote didn't work, let's say. <laughs> we'll talk about how we voted yeah. in a minute. But I think I came at it as someone who's been a pastor. Um, and, and being a pastor, that's you. your communities are, I mean, they're, you know, you're in a different particular areas and so on, so they're not complete diversity of society. But they are more diverse than people who've just chosen to, to get together because they've got a whole lot in common. Churches, you mean? Yeah. And yes. so that that need to be able to talk to people who think quite differently to you to be able to understand where they're coming from is actually core to the Christian view of community. Well, this, this or the is, way we do it. This for me, for instance, I'm not a climate change denier and or a skeptic. I'd say, um, but uh, it and so it it I find it quite um, puzzling when people say. Now, this is the core issue for Christians to be considering because I know so many people because I know people who are thoroughly Christian but who are sceptical about some of the rhetoric about uh, climate change. They're intelligent people who are who are well motivated. So they're not – I can't write them off as sort of uh, ignorant. And likewise, level. from the other side, people are saying religious freedom is the thing that you must vote on as a Christian, yeah. which for a lot of Christians also that I know – that was something that that's not going to be their defining issue. Yes, so the defining issue question mm. is one of the things. But then we, as as a pastor, and again as a church community, we wake up in the morning, we 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 go into church, and we discover there there are people who vote in ways that you find appalling. And we literally do that because <laughs> the elections on a Saturday always in Australia. So we do. We wake up the next morning on Sunday, and then we have to pray about it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I—I I mean, I've had—I've I've confessed this on the on the podcast before, that uh, I've had to be careful uh, with uh, people who lead prayers at, at my church because sometimes they they're quite partisan in the way they pray. Mm. They, they, that's been a, a temptation that people have had is to say, you know, they they haven't done this, but it'd be like saying, uh, thank thank God, we thank you God that the right side won the election and that. 
um, the gospel is going to be preserved because the liberals are in power. I mean, that'd be that'd be a massively inappropriate prayer mm-hmm. to pray on a Sunday. It might be your personal prayer, but it's um, uh, it's not one it's of not, the community. It's not. No, it must not be one of the community because there are people who are. Can we take devastated a little side, sort of a side glance at the the praying for Trump. Oh, thing. that moment when the pastor prayed for uh, uh, Trump turns up at the church. So that was, I think, so coming out of Franklin Graham um, calling for on the National Day of Prayer that people would pray for Trump because of his enemies. So it was a very partisan call for prayer by Franklin Graham, and um, I and I have to say I think that Trump turning up to a church that it wasn't his own one. And wanting to get prayed for was a political move. <laughs> oh, I, I don't doubt it. He's a politician. Yeah. So he does that. And to this pastor, David Obama Platt, did the same. I mean, Obama turns up to churches. and I mean, and, and Scott Morrison and, and Kevin Rudd. Well, let's put this in the particular context of Franklin Graham just of ha- having made that call. Mm-hmm. And then um, David Platt, who's the pastor, has uh, Trump turn up with cameras, et cetera, saying, please pray for me at the front of your church. In the middle of the service, the, right? Yeah. <laughs> so? So that's, you... I mean, there is that thing where prayer can become weaponized in a way or, or it can be used to um, advance political causes. It certainly it certainly can. And um, you've got to remember that there's the image too of the pastor praying for Trump. Mm. But I, I, at one level, I I. I he did a credit, good job. He did David a fantastic yeah. job, given the circumstances and given the fifteen minutes in which he would make the decision. Mm. Some people have said, "Oh, I should have just prayed privately and said, no, go away.'" Um, well, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done in the same situation with the adrenaline going and the security officers there and everything, and the president of the United States. Whoever and there's a that lot might to be. consider. I mean, same. I think. I mean, my personal thing, whoever it was, is yet necessarily disrupt what you're going to do in your service for anyone just turning up. So that's that's all. That's I mean, I've had to make that decision not with the president. <laughs> so, so I mean, private prayer or finding some other way would be something I would have considered, to be honest. But as you say, like, what do you do? There's so much riding on it, and you know that whatever you do, it's going to be in the papers. That's true, and also, but it's a biblical command to pray for the. Yeah, but you don't have to do it in front of their cameras. No, no, but it's a great way of demonstrating. I mean, you, you kind of think, well, here's a way of demonstrating that um, I'm going to pray for him in a nonpartisan way. Yeah, which but was cop- really helpful. He copped some flack from his it's- own congregation, and he wrote, a, I yeah. thought, a really considered letter in response, both apologising for those who were offended, and um, uh, but explaining what he did and saying, you know, I, I thought it, I thought he, you, you couldn't fault him, though you could have said. With retrospect, maybe he would have done something differently. No, I thought he did a great job. And it was helping me think through this issue of while we don't want to be politicised in that way in our churches, we also don't want to be non-political in that uh, ignoring um, the many important things about our society that come up in politics. So he's th- that, and you're absolutely right. We can't be apolitical. Um, because the church is it's it's a polis, and mm-hmm. because we're driven instinctively to think about matters of justice and righteousness, and the Bible is it, it, it's there. Jesus is a polit- you know he's political if if he's nothing yeah, else. Yeah. He's the Lord for heaven's sake. That's a political statement right there. But how to do that without without the tribalism, without the the partisanship? And and uh, I read this great book by. Um, Francis Spufford called Unapologetic, which mm. is a terrific book for You've all sorts of... You've brought this up on the podcast before. I have. It's a terrific book for Am all sorts Am I meant to of, read this? Yeah, it's a great. It's, okay. It, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. But um, 
uh, he he says, look, and I may have said this in the podcast before. He says uh, one of the difficult things is that Sarah for me is that Sarah Palin is also yeah, a Christian. Yeah, you did. Yep. Um, I repeat myself. I've only got so many things I say. Uh, and he said, but I have to. I, I can't dismiss her. That doesn't mean I give her a free pass. Mm. But I somehow have to live in a world in which, in which she is my Christian sister, and so therefore I can't. I can't just treat her with contempt. Mm. And maybe that's where, that's where we need to stand. Well, I think that. When I was thinking through my reactions post the election, yeah, my theology there. So, sort of John seventeen and um, Jesus' prayer for the disciples uh, that there we should be one. There has to be a real outcome of that. That has to be. And how do we be one in Christ, but we be like Christ to each other? So, in terms of the Christian community, absolutely, there is a call there that we cannot just divorce people from ourselves or treat them as non-people. But also then if you look at the wider human community, uh, we are all also in the image of God. So you can't other the people in the, other, in, in the wider community as well that somehow we need to be doing this human thing together. Well, it's a model. I think we need to model at the congregation's politics internally. It needs to be a model for what the community does. And that's why I think I was, I was disappointed to some extent from some stuff coming from the Christian community post the election um, and wondering how we could do it better. And um, and and I was thinking, how do we do it where we don't put everything under the carpet and we acknowledge real, real emotions? Like people were had genuine emotions that came to the depths of who they are on either side. Um, and we don't want to deny that discussion as well. Um, no, absolutely, yeah. hundred percent. But but it needs to be done now. And I think we're going to model this by. Uh, I'm okay. going to ask yeah, you <laughs> how you voted yeah. and why you chose to vote. And this is this is big for you because just to <laughs> put you in it, I have been more open about this previously in public comment, and you have not. True. Okay. This I is why you're for, starting. I'm just saying I didn't force him into this. It was his, uh, anyway. I mean, I feel like that should be a disclaimer here. Um, I. I cried after the election because um, I voted um, on the left side. I voted for Labor in the House of Reps and uh, for various people who I thought would be pushing um, things like climate change and a better attitude towards refugees and so on in the Senate. Um, And actually, I let my um, teenager talk to me about what I should vote in the Senate. So for me... um, Climate change is so urgent, it does trump uh, a lot of other issues. And then just a whole general lot of issues about um, treating people um, with compassion um, are also quite up there for me, like human rights issues. Human rights issues, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so um, Indigenous issues. Indigenous issues, refugee issues. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they would be... Foreign aid, for, in, for instance, for me as well, is a big one. Um, and Labor really started to come to the party on that. So They did have an impressive foreign aid mm. thing. So I voted Liberal. And in doing that, I, uh, you know, I, I do sent, uh, I'm reticent even to have said what I've just said <laughs> um, because I know, um, I, I know Christians who think that that's the only possible way for an evangelical Christian to vote. But I also know Christians who are horrified that anyone would vote. For the liberals, uh, there's a couple of reasons I did that. I live in a uh, I lived in a um, election an electorate which was on a knife edge in Wentworth, and 
I got to know the local candidate. I got to know both local candidates. Um, I didn't feel there was, in fact, much difference between them. I believe in major parties, not independents. Um, so I voted for the major party. I felt that the candidate was a really good, a really good guy. I want a person who's committed to public service. Um, I uh, I felt that he was. Uh, building, open to building a relationship and so I could have a conversation with him so that was important for me that I could actually have access to him mm. and a conversation with him. I'm quite pragmatic not di- not idealistic so while I think um, climate change for instance the addressing climate change is an important issue I feel it's far more effective in fact if that happens uh, from within the Liberal Party rather than uh, from, from a conservative side if you actually really want progress, get a conservative party to do it, uh, it'll be more effective. <laughs> uh, so, Getting them to do it is the... Well, yeah. I think it's more possible and also then it's much more, it, it actually builds consensus, whereas I think uh, the polarisation that occurred actually is not is a symptom of, of what could happen the other way. Um, I think freedom of religion is actually important for the week, for the week, and not just it's not just a question of my own privilege. It's a question of my Jewish neighbours and my Muslim neighbours, as well as for um, the operation of education. And I feel like the ALP had only contempt for it, really, and the Greens especially have contempt for this issue, or no interest in it. And I do detect active hostility uh, from. There's no. I, I feel like there's a division between that side of politics and the 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 religious. Um, people of Australia that that needs to be healed somewhere. Um, I'd like to see more effort from the uh, ALP and the Greens to to hold out a hand f- to the religious community. So that was uh, a, a, we could argue about that, but I I, um, I felt that was a consideration. But I am conscious of those other issues. I don't think they just go away. And I'm not I'm not a lifelong rusted on liberal voter. Mm. Um, I vote for context. So when I lived in a Labor electorate. I voted for the Labor Party partly because I didn't want the Greens to win. So, um, and I felt that the, the person was doing a strategic good job there. voting. I I do tend very left, but uh, I, in a Christian sense, not like on the left side, perhaps not very left. I do. I, I did once preference Liberals above Labor um, because I thought this was in New South Wales. I thought Labor was corrupt. Uh, so there is those kind of um, considerations that the as well, that policy is no good if you can't trust the people who are enacting it. Um, and I think that's a, a, a particularly a Christian way to vote as well. I think, that's impo- I think it's important not to be rusted on Yeah, for those reasons, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, the religious freedom thing. I mean, I have a different experience, I think, of the left side that, and perhaps there's some of the tribal stuff that I don't feel like they're not listening to the religious side, but um, maybe that's it, it's their response to kind of the, the religious communities that you are sitting in more. Do you see what I'm saying? No, that's certainly true. Um, I, but Bill Shorten showed um, just disdain for people who voted, uh, voted no in the same-sex marriage campaign. He, he was just contemptuous of us. So I, I just didn't feel like I'd give him my vote. I think the religious freedom thing was something where I felt that it, it hasn't been developed. Uh, and as we see with what's been happening with the freedom of the press, I think generally freedom is something we've taken for granted in Australian culture because we have had a lot of freedoms. And I don't think we've had a really adequate understanding of how we preserve all sorts of different freedoms. And so 
Yeah, the, the way that religious freedom was being talked about on the right, I actually had some concerns about, even though it's something that I feel really strongly about. Yeah, it's it's um, uh, it, it can be talked about in triumphalistic ways. And what I, mm. what I really don't want to see is a kind of triumphalism of, oh, thank goodness, um, from people who are Christians who would align themselves with the, the, the conservative side of politics being triumphalistic and thinking, oh, we now have a chance to Christianise Australia or this is a sign of how Christian mm. that Australia wants to remain Christian. I do think it is evidence that we're more religious than we think. I think there's an evidence that there's been some discussion in the papers that the religious aspect, the religious communities are actually they're actually more important than perhaps uh, the, elect, the, the politicians have given credit for. They haven't gone away in, in the way the demographers have been suggesting. Well, I wonder whether, I mean, certainly I think it would be great for people on Labor and so on and the left to talk more to religious leaders and, and to try and engage more with that particular perspective. And I think that also uh, from a lot of Christian leaders who are talking about religious freedom, I think they need to engage more with people on the left themselves uh, and particularly Christians on the left to kind of say, how, how would you envisage this happening? What's important to you as we talk about this? I think so. I think if you're really passionate about getting getting uh, action on climate change, you can't you can't make it divisional. You, and you the same with religious to... freedom. If, if, if that's really important to you, then take it really, really seriously and, and be willing to come and talk to people that you aren't necessarily your kind of person about it. Discomfort zone. Ever thought someone might think differently if they went outside their comfort zone? This is where we make the other do just that. This was my, my turn to suggest a book, and it was a book I read on a trip uh, which was part work, part holiday. So I went away and read a bunch of books and I was quite excited to read David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain. It's fresh off the press. And he's a, a columnist with the New York Times. Uh, he would lean conservative in uh, his political thinking, but uh, I think he's more interesting than just a political uh, alignment. Mm. Uh, he, he wrote a book a few years ago which uh, talked about, um, uh, it was called the, the Road to Character, uh, and it, this book actually says, look, I, I think I've developed my thinking since then for all sorts of personal reasons. And there is a personal journey in this book, which a personal development in this book, which makes it, I think, a, a richer book in some in some aspects. Um, and in particular, he's asking people to live for a cause larger than themselves. Um, he says, the thesis of the book is there are two mountains we climb. The first one in life, we're invited to climb a mountain, where, which is a life lived for ourselves, the, the, the mountain of achievement and success. But he says there's actually a second. You get to the top and you discover that that really, it is that all there is? It's not <laughs> as you're kind of happy when you succeed for about an hour and then it kind of, you kind of moves on. And he says, actually, we're much better off pursuing a life lived as a gift for others. We need to make strong commitments to to things like uh, our career, not as a career but a vocation, or to our marriage and family uh, to find a philosophy and, and a faith. And so, uh, it it's sort of it's a it's, there's a kind of underlying possible conversion story in here too. But I gave it to Megan to read. So, having given the summary, <laughs> what did you think of it, Megan? Um, well, let me say this conversation. It wasn't because I disliked David Brooks or anything, but I probably wouldn't have read it um, because he is so here's what he says about himself from a 2016 interview one of my callings is to represent a certain moderate republican Whig political philosophy and the other is to try to shift the conversation more 
in a moral and theological direction, which is why you're saying it's greater than just his political allegiances. So just I probably just wouldn't have even thought of reading it, not because I had any sort of negative feeling about it. Um, I really liked it. Actually, I sent you a message saying, yes. <laughs> were you going to bring this up? No, no. I just, I'm kind of pleased that I found something you actually like reading. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said, this is like the book that I would have written if I was a conservative dude. So, I mean, that's a big disclaimer there. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that, that make, those things make a lot of difference. But a lot of what, I mean, some of these are just things that really speak to my heart. Like his emphasis on joy, his emphasis on community. Um, and I love reading people's, I mean, this is sort of a conversion story. Um, I always really enjoy reading people, um, well, even more broadly, people talking about finding many in their lives. So, hmm. Yeah, I think, th- and that's what really appealed to me was um, it's a book uh, which I can use as a pastor in evangelism and also in pastoring peoples. I, I'd be interested in talking about gender in, in, in this because yeah. I think... I think for many women, the life narrative is slightly it's going to be different, but not, not necessarily. But uh, I, I speak to many people, men and women, who get to their 40s and think, well, I've been working really hard to make a success of myself, and actually I discover like, this isn't what it's about. So help me find some tracks of meaning, and mm. how can I disentangle from my individualism that I'm so wedded to and find something bigger than myself and joy was so so we are so hungry for joy mm. um, and that of course goes back to Augustine and C.S. Lewis and people who who the Bible the, oh, the, <laughs> the Bible yes the Bible and um, and people are hungry for for that deeper sense of satisfaction um, which comes from serving others not from just yeah and he's racking up um, more dollars well, in terms of the gender thing, I actually think, and he says this a couple of times, he says that, in fact, it's not necessarily that it chronolo- chronologically goes that way. It's kind of his metaphor based on his particular um, journey, which a lot of other people who are like him would have. But he, he basically is actually saying there's first mountain and second mountain people. So some people might start off in the second mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, gender. I mean, I think women often it's still a search for meaning it's just that often yes we uh, give our first part of our lives over to um, other people uh, and then we have to assess the way that we've done that um, did it produce the meaning did it do what we wanted it to do uh, so there's still sort of a a looking for joy or or looking like it has what I've done in fact actually contributed yes and and whereas whereas the again cliched, um, stereotypical male a commitment in the first in the 20s and 30s to ach- achievement and success in the external mm. world, the world of work, um, you get to your 40s and you discover that it's not what you thought it was, is happening just at the time your partner, possibly, is having a different sort of um, revelation that that the the domestic world is perhaps, you know, have I achieved anything? What mm. Can I at least have a go at that first mountain? Um. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not necessarily a first mountain in his sense when, when a woman wants to do that. Then, in fact, what they're doing actually is wanting to be second mountain people on on a broader um, field. Does yes. that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes, that makes absolute sense. Um, in fact, it would be a trap to to start climbing the first mountain 
again, it's a trap for anyone. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, 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 there's nothing at the top. Or at the top, it's the view isn't that great. And I found this interesting coming from a conservative. I mean, I was a little bit, oh, bless. <laughs> I found this interesting coming from a conservative because he is talking against what he sees as the hyper-individualism um, that's sort of taken Western culture captive. Um, and he's quite willing to say that that's happened within the conservative um, movements within American culture particularly. Yeah, no, he's right, uh, and it's not true conservatism in the in the Burkean sense. Mm, That's mm. where he he is a great great fan of Edmund Burke from the late 19, the late eighteenth century, who wrote in response to the French Revolution, because uh, he wants to turn us into people who foster community. Mm. Um, and he says, uh, but the economic emphasis in Republican and uh, con- politically conservative thinking has been very it's been deleterious. It's not. It's actually fostered a more a lonely culture than has ever been seen ever in human existence. We are extraordinarily isolated and uh, lonely and anxious, I'd say, and bored probably too. And he takes that that individualism um, and meritocracy and so on and, and argues for that being some of why there's polarisation, which he's also speaking against here, uh, and says that um, when people become so disconnected, they're looking for any kind of belonging. And so tribalism, which he sort of sees as distinct from real community, becomes where they try and find belonging, which he finds uh, really problematic. So I wanted to put, put this as a question to you, whether you, whether you thought this was a, a, a shift that Christians could embrace. Um, the political discussion, as we know it, is highly tribalised, mm. us and them. Uh, he's saying... Actually, actually, that's not where the action is. It's in social or moral discussion, which is not polit- is not politicised in that sort of um, one person getting in power and the other person not. Um, is there resonance in that that takes it out of that politicised space? And and particularly when you see Christian parties in the United States more than here aligning themselves with political parties, that's a false trail. Uh, they mm. should. The theological. We're there for a theological discussion. People are much more open for talking about theology than you think, and and certainly about morality. Uh, or, I, I was in two ethos. minds because um, I think morality has political outcomes, and um, I think that, for instance, one of the things that he, he the way that he talks about community ignores sort of systemic. Um, uh, interactions, uh, engagements with it that you could have, and and that's that's where he's coming from. Uh, but yes, I did think that in fact, actually, I was sort of seeing it as a way forward for Australian society and so on to have a more communal engagement with each other to see that our community is greater. Uh, you know, governments come and go, but we still have to form a community together. Um, which has care for each other, and that has to happen not just through political means. Yes, he says, uh, for instance, loving care is not on the fringe of society. It's the foundation of society. Yeah. And he says relationship is the driver of change. And I've, I've found this myself. I, th- I think actually I've made uh, – I've had the blessing to make friends with people who disagree with me on all sorts of things. Mm. And I think what you find in friendship is, is influence – Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a bit dangerous because you make friends with someone you find oh that complicates life actually mm. but it's much it's it's a much uh, richer and more adult and more community based kind of change or kind of act you know it's, a, it's an extremely powerful thing to make those those connections relationship rather than than flinging tweets at each other 
And I, they come down to what he's talking about. He's really keen on commitment, uh, which is really interesting because this is a story that comes kind of out of him being divorced and uh, then entering yes, into a second marriage. Yeah. Uh, but there is that so communion doesn't work without commitment. And that is, I think, my approach when we came out of the election was to go, I am committed to this country. I'm committed to the people around me in community. So I don't get to write them off. And and similarly, I think within church, I'm committed to people in Christ. Um, and, and it's that kind of commitment of saying, I'm going to sit with people no matter what's going on for them. And I'm going to involve, which this is very, he loves this. And this charmed me in the book because <laughs> um, it's kind of how I try and live. Uh, that commitment involves involving myself with other people that their joys and, and their good um, becomes intricately wound up with mine. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that really hits, you know, that's punchy, you know, that kind mm. of really has impact um, because that's not how I tend to, I tend to think. Uh, uh, that's not how I'm led to think by the shape of contemporary debates mm. and by my own sinful self, I think, uh, my own selfishness and my own envy, um, my own tendency to compare, you know, the consumer economy just loves comparison. It doesn't mm-hmm. love connection. Um, it doesn't love sharing. Um, but that change of ethos might actually be uh, a better way to achieve action on climate change, for instance, because you you produce consensus from it. He tells this um, wonderful story about a community he's involved in uh, with this couple that I think they they had a, a one of their children had a friend that they kind of ended up inviting into their house and into their meal table, and they end up with about forty. Sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> yeah. um, or just my life too. And then they end up with about forty um, people, children. Uh, or mm. young adults who come part of their community. And it's a community where it's sort of like really quite influential people because it's in Washington, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And then then all of this um, much less um, socially advantaged young people coming together sort of very regularly and they get really intertwined with each other's lives. And so they ended up setting up a, a foundation to help all of them go to um, university, for instance, um, but he sees it as very mutual and that the young people also have given a lot into um, the older people's lives. And I thought, wow, that's – I mean, if you've got p- – the movers and shakers in Washington, that's the kind of community you want them to be involved in, isn't it? A hundred percent. And you can see, again, it's not about agitating or – it's an ab- not an abstract discussion. Mm. It's actually – he says, I've never I've learned to never underestimate the power of a dinner table. Mm. And, I mean, I think, again, for the church, we – we at, at our church, we want to talk about eating together all the time because I think there's a spiritual, the theological thing yeah. in, in, in that. But, but eating together is sort of is so tangible and so it's so communal. So, so the opposite of uh, contemporary individualism and tribalism. And I think you can still, I mean, face-to-face is irreplaceable. But even like I was noticing in the what a Facebook group after the – like we had to do a lot of moderation post the election, right? We did. <laughs> but we allowed the discussion to happen and it kind of moved. And then people started asking, well, why did you vote the way that you voted? And there's a lot of listening happening and a lot of care of each other. And out of that, I actually thought the group sort of went to a new place where other discussions became much more able to be had because we didn't shy away from no, that's dealing right. with each that's other. Right. And I think uh, there should be some sharing of recipes on that page, <laughs> uh, perhaps as well in the spirit of the second Oh, oh I'm totally up for that. Marg and Dave, reviews from two people obsessed by stories but not always the same ones. 
And we're looking at Dairy Girls. Look, it's Irish. <laughs> so there's a lot of bad language. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> That's my disclaimer. That. We have to do that disclaimer True. a lot. But we've been looking, we both love this, and we've been looking to try and bring it in. And we finally found a hook. And the hook is that, uh, of course, Dairy Girls uh, comes, it, it, it is set in the time of the, the early 90s, the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, and so it's a divided, deeply divided and violent community in which this sitcom happens, this, this, this comedy happens. And, of course, that's the backdrop, which kind mm. of makes it darker and funnier at the same time. By the way, there's a second series out that we haven't yet seen. It's not on Netflix yet. So we're looking forward to seeing that, though I've seen some clips. And it's much more, I mean, it even addresses the It really starts addressing some of that, that partisan Much more explicitly. Yeah. In fact, I think they have a, there's an episode I see where they, the Catholic girls in the story are uh, led into a kind of uh, a bridge building exercise with Protestants. And, of course, they're sitting there going, <laughs> I wonder if there are any uh, <laughs> huge the Protestant, bo- Protestant. <laughs> Protestant boys. Um, so, so that's the kind of context of this. How does a, how does a community with those really deep divisions uh, go about resolving it or living in it? And it came about because the writer herself came from that community um, at that time as a teenage girl. And she was saying, you know, you imagine that being in the midst of the troubles uh, is a very dark life, but actually it was just a very normal teenage life in some ways. It's just there were bomb threats. <laughs> got to, yeah, your school bus has got to go around a different way. So she wanted, and she wanted to give that female perspective on because she thought that it would show a really different side to base this around women. When she feels like the way that's often talked about, it, it's about the conflict between men and the soldiers. Yeah, and that's that's certainly. I mean, it's a group of girls uh, at a girls Catholic girls oh, school, and one boy, and one boy, which is <laughs> hilarious. Who's kind of wondering what they're going to do for toilet since there's no boys toilet. Well, he, he's English and they didn't think he was going to cope at the Irish boys. No, that's, that's, that's right. Because they really don't like the English. And, and he, he cops a lot of uh, a lot of flack in it, of course. Well, he's a really important character because he show, he's, he's one of the outsider characters and he shows some of the ridiculousness of the tribalism in that um, he just, all of their ideas about the English get put on this hapless Boy, yeah, he's <laughs> a sixteen-year-old boy, constantly wondering what's going on. Yeah, that's that's true. And one thing I noticed was how um, <laughs> they they sort of uh, trivialise or, or kind of they're just sort of blithely uh, aware of the bomb scares and all that going on around them. But then it's sort of international struggles are um, are kind of brought in, and they're really caring about children in Africa or the people from Chernobyl. So they have a bunch of Ukrainians coming in. Uh, and and this, the, the poor people from Ukraine who are coming to what we think is a sort of civil war torn yeah. country, but and they just of course, feel sorry for the yes for the Irish the Ukrainians. And I think the the kind of point there was that what we we what we normalise, you know, we live in a war zone. You grow up in a war zone. That's what you think is kind of normal. It always feels worse that the poor people in the Ukraine are dealing with the nuclear fallout and they don't have any food, which actually it turned out they did. They're pretty normal too. Um, the other one, the other one was, of course, the uh, the the religious characters like the um, sister Michael. And I I love her. I think she says the things that I would love to say. <laughs> but she really dis. Oh, I thought that was because she really dislikes priests, right? And I think it shows up that you know, even within a very tight knit community, a tribe, there are all sorts of um, different other conflicts going on. Yes, is it anti? Do you think there's an a hostility to the Catholic Church or to religion in 
in Dairy Girls? Or is it just affectionate, this is just normal, this is what we were? I think, yeah, I think it's an insider's view. It's just this is what it's like. I, I mean, Sister Michael is an enormously appealing character. Well, she rolls her eyes. She's sort of... <laughs> She kind of shows that, in fact, um, in some ways, she normalises uh, Catholicism because she, she, she's a very real person. <laughs> yes, and she, whenever the, the young, good-looking priest comes in and she just kind of goes, oh. Yeah, and we're able, actually, I mean, what I really like about this is it, it is kind of saying we have a lot more in common with each other. That Trying to live as a human um, in the midst of everything going on is the same in a lot of ways, world round. It, it is both highly specific to its context mm. and also it could be young girls trying to grow up anywhere. Anyway, yeah. Um, you know, there's a specific Irish take on the, the humour and there's a sort of black humour as well. Yeah. But certainly it, it I think that's it. It's sort of like um, this is – the danger is normalising conflict though, is saying actually, no, that we're just used to this situation where there's them and there's us and we, we kind of don't ever address that, that deep divide. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's a problematic that's put in the middle of the story. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to season two to see what happens when they address that more. With All Due Respect is hosted by Megan Paldetois and me, Michael Jensen. This episode was produced by Bella Ann Sanchez with sound design by Adam Jones. You can subscribe to With All Due Respect on iTunes, Spotify or on any of the other places you get your podcasts. To check out our show notes... You can find them at eternitynews.com.au backslash respect. And join us as part of the growing and respectful uh, community over at our Facebook page, which is with all due respect by Eternity News at Facebook.